Let's go to Luke chapter 22, but we have two passages to read from this morning. The other will be in 1 Corinthians, so Luke 2, and then we'll start with the 1 Corinthians passage. It's in chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. We're going to be talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread this morning, and in doing so, uh, I thought it would be good to read from 1 Corinthians as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so now we're in chapter 22 of Luke, the first eight verses. Verse 1, chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he considered and began seeking a good opportunity to, to, to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had, had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with thanksgiving. As we've been reminded in our singing that this is our, this is our place before you to thank you. You are good, you are sovereign, you are just, you are holy, and you are patient. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be yours, to hear from you. We thank you that you're not silent, but you do speak. We ask for your wisdom this morning as we come together before you to listen to you, both as the one that is preaching and those who are listening, Lord, that you be glorified, that you be honored, that you be seen. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, I got to say, it is really good to see Charlie McCall here. I both appreciate and enjoy the opportunity to speak, but I got to tell you, I'm ready for Charlie to get back up here. So, Charlie, it's good to see you. How are you celebrating your deliverance from sin? We see here in verse 1, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the time to celebrate it, which is called the Passover. It was approaching. Just what does this mean? Well, the feast, there's really a double feast that's going on during this week. It takes place... Uh, in the month of Nisan, or for us, April 14th and 15th, and then throughout the week. 
but it starts 14th, 15th. It was a double feast of the unleavened bread, and first the unleavened bread, and then the very next day going into the Passover, or the other way, Passover, then going into the unleavened bread. Both were to, uh, for an observance. It would be the first religious holiday or the first feast of the year. And it would be a time of commemorating what God has done with the nation of Israel, his deliverance of them from captivity in Egypt. And also, it shows the redemptive work or the redemptive activity of God in his people's life. It was the first feast of the three major feasts that took place in the year. And so this would be one of those feasts where all of the male, all of the males who were physically able and ceremonially clean to go to Jerusalem and take part in this. It was during this time that the Psalms of Ascent, which are chapters 120 to 134, would be sung. So as they gather together, and they, what they would do is they would start off in one village, and the next village would wait for them, and they would meet together, and it was, it's been described to us as a time of celebration. It kind of brings to me the memory of what we kind of have today, you know, when we get together for our Christmas time how there's just, there's just excitement in the air and we come together for our celebration as a church on Christmas Eve. It's kind of that idea. And so we, we need to see, we need to understand what's going on here. There's excitement, there's anticipation as they all gather together and they keep making the pilgrimage up toward Jerusalem. And then they enter into the city, all of the people from the nation coming together to celebrate something. And what are they celebrating here? They're celebrating this incredible commemoration of the deliverance of God. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5 that there's something very significant for us as believers to see in this celebration. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 it says this, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed so what's going on here as they celebrate this feast, they come together and there's that anticipation and that excitement. What's going on here is that they are literally celebrating Messiah. They are literally celebrating Jesus. And so how will they celebrate? We see in verse 2 that the religious leadership wants to murder Jesus. So they're celebrating the, their deliverance by seeking to kill the deliverer. In verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Part of this feast would involve the removal of leaven from their houses. They were to take it not only you know, out of a room, but to completely take it out of the house because the leaven was a picture of sin. And that's the, that's the celebration here in this deliverance. The removal of sin. No longer having to, 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 to face that. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 15, it reads like this. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. But on the first day you shall remove the leaven from your houses. 
For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So have nothing to do with it. Get rid of the leaven. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8, reads like this, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Luke, chapter 12, says this in verse 1, Under these circumstances, I'm sorry, beware of the leaven, of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So we see the leaven is a picture of sin. And looking at this, then we we come to this, that observing the feast of celebrating the deliverance from sin that Christ brings about, the religious leadership looked right on the outside. They're keeping the feast. They're removing the leaven from their homes. They looked right on the outside, but they were horribly wrong on the inside. Matthew tells us in chapter 23, verse 27, Woe to you, you scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and are unclean. Right on the outside, but it's just a whitewash. It's just a covering up of the defection of the inside. Now, uh, as a little boy... I just hated eggs. I didn't like the taste of them. I tried it, didn't like it. Tried different kinds, didn't like it. So I just didn't eat them. When I was a teenager, attending church camp, uh, if you didn't eat eggs, basically you didn't eat. So I had to work on that, and I did. I got that week, I got to where I was about 15. I got to where... Okay, I can get them down. If they're dry enough and I put enough salt and pepper on them and anything else I've got to cover them up, then if I do that, I can get them down. And from that, I started to eat them a little bit. I never liked them. I just knew that I was supposed to eat them, and it made Mom happy, so I ate them. Didn't like them. It was about, a, oh, just a few months after that. You know, I had just started eating eggs now. I'm 15 years old, just started eating eggs, and we're on a road trip with the family. On the way home, we're in North Texas. On our way back to South Louisiana, so it's a long drive ahead of us, we stopped at a diner for breakfast, and I ordered eggs. I got my eggs, and I bit into them. didn't taste just right, but I didn't like eggs anyway, so, and I'd only really started eating them, so I figured, it's what this egg tastes like. I kept eating it, and I was just about finished with it, and I you know, started to think through it a little bit and thought, you know what? I don't think this egg is right. I'm not going to eat any more of it. In other words, I wasn't going to take the last bite. We got back in the car, and about 30 minutes later, I started to get sick. We had to drive all the way through the rest of Texas and through Louisiana to get home, and it was a miserable trip. 
I was in, just, I will not tell you how bad it was, but it was bad. It was so bad that I didn't eat another egg for 35 years. <laughs> and I still don't like the taste of them, but now my wife wants me to eat them, so I will eat them. <laughs> and cover them up with as much as I can. Looked fine on the outside, but something was horribly wrong on the inside. Sooner or later, what was true about the inside is revealed on the outside. And that can be true of us, can't it? Just out of Bible college, well, actually, during high school years, I had met another, another young man my age. We both grew up in Louisiana, and he was... Uh, he was already developing as a preacher and well-known throughout the state. He's very evangelistic. And he would, as a 15, 16, 17-year-old, he was known for being invited into churches, big churches, small churches all over the state. A really gifted speaker. And I was more interested in the music end of ministry, so the two of us kind of connected well. And and uh, we, we, we started talking about working together, and then we did. After Bible college, we started to work together. And we, you know, he would, he would uh, speak at different youth conferences and different churches, and he was a youth pastor. He had a, a growing youth group, and he was baptizing a large number of kids in the state. It was... He was well-known and, 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 and well-respected. And one day we found out to our horror that he looked great on the outside. But something was horribly wrong on the inside. So much so that he reached a point to where he tried to kill his wife so he could marry one of the girls in his youth group. I know that's a horrible story, but I've got to paint the picture of what the Lord's dealing with here. That it is very possible for there to be people, the book of Jude covers this. There to be people who look right, who talk right, who sing right who sit next to us, who go on our mission trips, who lead us in some instances. But at the same time, there'd be something horribly wrong on the inside. And sooner or later, what is wrong on the inside will be revealed on the outside. We see that here with the religious leadership, those who should recognize, welcome with excitement, the Messiah, but instead they want to kill the very one that they're celebrating. And we give the Pharisees a hard time. I know I do. You know, I, it, it's not hard for me to think of them as idiots. But in those few moments, when I really want to look at my heart, I find that I can identify well with them. But then we go on and we look at Judas, a man who is close 
to Jesus. And what we find of him is sobering, horrifying. We find here how he wants to celebrate the deliverance of Jesus. In verse 3, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. What does he want to do? He wants to betray Jesus. In verse 6, so he considered and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him. The source is very clear in verse 3. The source of Judas' betrayal is Satan himself. In John chapter 8, verse 42, we read this. Jesus said to them, in the context of this, is Jesus is, is addressing the fact that there are those in the crowd who want to kill him. And so he says this, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Why is that? In verse 44 of chapter 8 in John, it says this. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Major Thomas once said this, As godliness is the direct and exclusive consequence of God's activity and God's capacity to reproduce himself in you, so all ungodliness is the direct and exclusive consequence of Satan's activity and his capacity to reproduce the devil in you. There's nothing in Scripture that indicates that Judas did not take part in anything that the other 11 apostles experienced. What do I mean? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. And stay there for a little while because we're going to come back to Matthew in a second. But here in chapter 10, a couple of things to point out. Judas was given every opportunity and privilege that was given to every other apostle. In chapter 10 of Matthew and starting in verse 2, we just simply see them listed. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and enlisted right there with all the others, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Look back at verse 1. What about this list? What about these men that are named there, of which Judas is one? Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority 
over the unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. They were given, including Judas, the authority for this. Stay there in Matthew. I'm going to read some other passages. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it says, And he appointed twelve, so that they would be with him, and that he would send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. In Mark 6, 7, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out to, in pairs, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Then in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 1, and he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons to heal diseases. So he was given authority to preach and to deal with the demons, along with the other apostles. It's terrifying, isn't it? To look at this and see how close a person can be to Jesus yet actually be so far away. To be touched by him, to hear him. To be physically affected by him, yet not be any further away. While you're in Matthew, go to chapter 7. Beginning in verse 21, Jesus says that this is something that we all need to be aware of. In verse 21 of chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Look at this list. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. Then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This should grab our attention. To actually be involved with such things as prophesying in his name and casting out demons in his name and performing miracles in his name and all of that be lawlessness. Because it's apart from Christ. He doesn't know you. I know... In my lifetime, I have, uh, in preparing for this, I thought about two men that I've known. Once as a young man in the church I was growing up in, and then later on as a grown man at his hill. Two men, both were active in the church, both active in the religious activity of the church. Both had the same personality. They were both mean. They were active in church. They were consistently there. And they were mean. 
Both of them came to realize that they had never entrusted their life to Christ. Both of them placed their faith in Jesus as grown men. And both had changed lives. As the inside was changed, it also affected their demeanor. These two men who were mean (laughs) became very pleasant. Actually a joy to be around. Not because of how they looked on the outside, but they had been changed on the inside, which affected eventually how they were seen on the outside. Do you live changed? I'll even say this with both of these men. It was, I misspoke. Once they were changed on the inside, I said eventually they changed. No. With both of these men that I have witnessed, both of them were instantly changed on the outside. And so I'm left with asking us the question, have I been changed on the inside? Have I placed my faith in Christ? Have I entrusted him? Do I believe in him? Have you been changed? Now, we see these two examples, the Pharisees, and we're used to looking down on them. But then we come a little closer to Jesus, don't we? And it gets a little more uncomfortable. But there's somebody else that's celebrating this feast in this passage. Now, I want us to spend the rest of our time looking at him, and that would be Jesus. The deliverer, deliverer himself, celebrating the deliverance. In verses 7 to 8 in our passage back in Luke 22, we read this. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. There is no hesitation in celebrating this feast by Christ. And as we'll look at some of the verses in the rest of the chapter, we'll see how that is such a big deal. But there's no hesitation. He's moving forward. He's very resolute. He will celebrate the deliverance. The deliverer is going to celebrate the deliverance. There's no hesitation I came across an interesting story regarding hesitation. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was very frustrated with General George McClellan because he wasn't moving, he wasn't doing anything. So President Lincoln just wrote a very famous one-sentence letter. Dear General, if you don't don't want to use the army, I should like to borrow it for a while. Respectfully, A. Lincoln. 
There should be no hesitation. There should be no hesitation of the believer in celebrating our deliverance from sin. There should be no hesitation from the believer in celebrating our deliverance from sin all day, every day, in any circumstance. For this is our reality in Christ. Jesus does not hesitate. He doesn't hesitate even though he's fully aware of the evil all around him. In verse 15, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus is fully aware, the deliverer is fully aware of what is involved in celebrating this deliverance. He knows that suffering will be the reality. He does not hesitate in the face of betrayal. In verse 21, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me, or is with mine on the table. He knows what is in Judas's heart. He knows what's about to happen. In verses 47 and 48, he has gone to this garden. He has prayed, and now the, and now the, the, the assimilated, the, the crowd comes. They, they gather those that are that they can, they can get on their side. While he was still speaking in verse 47, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, one of those who has been given the authority, one of the twelve, was preceding them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man? with a kiss. There's no hesitation. Jesus does not hesitate, though he is very much aware of the evil around him, though he is facing betrayal, he does not hesitate. He doesn't even try to hide from Judas. Look in verse 39. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom the Mount of Olives and the disciples also followed him, as was his custom. This is what he does. We know by, from the end of the previous chapter that every day he would preach in the temple and at night he would go to the, to the, to the mountain. And so he does it. He's not, hiding. He's not hiding. He's not trying to avoid this. There's no hesitation. There's no hesitation in celebrating the deliverance, even when he's carrying the weight of the world. In verses 41 to 44, he's now, after they've, after they've had the supper, they've had their feast, and he goes then to pray in the garden. Beginning in verse 41, and he withdrew from them, his disciples, about a stone's throw. He knelt down and began to pray saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. 
And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus goes to pray, and something interesting here, he, he kneels. It has been pointed out that the normal position of the Jewish prayer would be one of standing, eyes and hands lifted to heaven. But Jesus kneels. And we know from other accounts, both in Matthew and Mark, at some point during this, he's not only kneeling, but then he is what? He's flat on his face, prostrate, laying there. Walter Wessel says this, the wrath of God was turned loose on him. Only this can adequately explain what happened in Gethsemane. The burden and the agony were so great, he could not stand up. It's been described to me that with some of the, by those who understand the wording better, that there's a picture here of him collapsing to the ground. That's what he's dealing with as he deals with your sin and my sin. Yet in that moment, there's no hesitation. But he celebrates. He refuses to fight. There's no hesitation. He refuses to fight against the Father's will in verses 50 and 51. And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed it. He refuses to fight against the Father's will. There's no hesitation. We see there's no hesitation by the deliverer in celebrating the deliverance, even though he knows that Peter will abandon him. In verse 34, while they are celebrating the feast and they're in their discussion after, and in verse 33, Peter says this, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. In verse 60, we see Peter said, he's already denied Christ twice at this point now, as Jesus has been arrested and he's sitting by the fire outside the building. Man, I do not know what you are talking about immediately. While he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he, how he had told him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Jesus celebrates, even knowing Peter will deny him. The deliverer will celebrate the deliverance, even though he will be mocked and beaten. 
In verses 63 to 65, we read, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? They were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Now remember the context of this. What's going on? There's a celebration going on. There's much anticipation in the city. There's an excitement here. As they celebrate their deliverance. And we find that the, that the deliverer dares to celebrate. Even though he's being mocked and beaten. And in the midst of all of this, being abused like this, we find that the deliverer, Jesus Christ, celebrates the deliverance as he speaks the truth. In verse 70, And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. What an incredible moment. As we study the life of Jesus and we see how it's been building and we see this moment come and he looks at them having been beaten, having been abandoned. And he says, yes, I am. I am the deliverer. Now, my dad, who is still alive, he's 92 years old, not with us much longer. He has Alzheimer's, and it's about to all end, has been an incredible example to me. He hasn't been perfect. But what an example. I can't remember a time in my life where my dad ever hesitated to tell or to live before others in such a way that Christ would be seen. This is kind of the overview as you take a bird's eye view of his life. He wasn't a perfect man. I'm not trying to paint that. And he would tell anybody and everybody of Jesus at any moment with his words and his life, regardless of whether it embarrassed me or not. And there were moments when it was embarrassing as we walk into the bank and dad starts to preach the gospel and then looks at me and says, now you take over. We, my dad used to, one of the things he used to do is buy wrecked vehicles and have them repaired and then sell them. And, and uh, we would go into the body shop. And, you know, the, sometimes it could be a pretty rough place. We walked in one time, there's beer cans all over the place. And there's lots of guys hanging out in there. They're, they're oil field workers. They work seven on, seven off, working offshore. And it's a pretty rough group of guys. And 
We walk in there, and Dad decides this is a great time to share the gospel. And I remember saying, not now, Dad, not now. Half of them are drunk. Not now, Dad. No hesitation. Now coming toward the end of his life, you know, we spent the last six years in Louisiana. And I cannot tell you how many times people would come up to us. I didn't know them. And tell me that they used to work for my dad. And tell me what kind of man he was. Tell me how they had not met a man like him. His insurance agent told me once of when he was sick, so bad off that he was in intensive care, and it didn't look like he was going to come out of it. And he says, my dad and my dad's best friend walked right in. Insurance agent's laying there in bed, and he had been out. He woke up, and he saw him there, and he was wondering, and he asked him, how did you get in here? You're not even supposed to be in here. They said, we just walked right in. And the insurance agent went on to tell me, he says, Kelly, this was something I will never forget. It has impacted me in a way that I have never been impacted before, but those two men stood over my bed, and they talked to me about Jesus. They prayed with me. They held my wife's hand and they prayed with her. There was no hesitation. Really, guys, I think that's my application for us today. In celebrating the deliverance from sin, do we find that we hesitate? You see, in verses 24 to 27... Jesus is talking with the disciples. He has just sent Judas away, knowing what he's about to do, and he's released him to do it. And he talks to them because he, he wants to address something they're talking about because they start to talk about which one of us is the greatest. Beginning at verse 24, and there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Here's the deliverer. Celebrating the deliverance as the servant. There's to be no hesitation for the believer in celebrating our deliverance in Christ. Am I celebrating my deliverance in Christ or am I plotting against him in secret? Wanting him to go along with my expectations of him. What is true of Christ must be true of us. 
It is, not, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. This is the believer's reality in Jesus. Why? Because verse 70 tells us, Jesus says, I am the Son of God. What does that mean? What does that mean to us? Because he is the Son of God, because he is the one who Hebrews says is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, because he is in the place of authority, the reality for you and me who have placed our faith in him is what? Is to not hesitate because he, he is. He is the Son of God. He is our life. He is our enabling. And if He is enabling, then there's no place for hesitation. And I find, as I look at this passage, the only way for me to live out celebration of my deliverance by the Deliverer is to live unhesitating. I don't know if there has ever been a bigger opportunity in my lifetime to show a life of celebrating my deliverance in Christ than what we're dealing with now in this world. I've told some of you that I believe that the church will emerge stronger from this crazy time that we're going through. And I believe that. I'm not saying we're necessarily going to be bigger but I do believe we will emerge stronger. But it's only possible if we take our place as servants to each other and not demanding others to serve us. This living, the celebration of being delivered only becomes a reality as we, by faith, abide in Jesus, who is the Son of God. Let's be found celebrating our deliverance from sin with the Deliverer, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your patience with us and your pursuit of us, your insistence of all that you are on us. And then we thank you for actually living the very demand. We thank you, Father, for your Son, our Deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, for your wisdom this day to live delivered. Unhesitated. That you be glorified. Thank you for allowing us this moment, to ask such an incredible thing. For it is your will. In Jesus' name.